You're listening to The Over 50 Entrepreneur, the podcast that's dedicated to the business builders who are only getting started when most are winding down. This is the place to discover how to create more freedom from your business while growing the value of your business. Now here's your host, Rick Hadrava. Hi, everybody. This is Rick Hadrava. And in case you didn't know, I am the host of the Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast, and that is the show that you're listening to. Hey, I appreciate you tuning in today, and we have with us a friend of mine, Simone Fulmer. I think you're going to really enjoy our conversation today. A little background on Simone. She has a degree in vocal music education, started out as a teacher, but today she's a successful lawyer and entrepreneur. She's a nationally known speaker, former president of the Oklahoma Association for Justice, former board member for the Oklahoma Lawyers for Children, and currently sits on the Board of Governors for the American Association for Justice. She was actually just recently named one of Law Dragon 500's leading plaintiff consumer lawyers. That sounds fascinating, but outside of that, she's a proud mother of two wonderful children, two cats, and a dog. She loves to travel in her free time, and she has a great appreciation for music, film, art, and design. I think you're going to get a lot out of today's show. So without further ado, let me welcome my friend, my guest, Simone Fulmer. Simone, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. You bet. Well, listen, that all sounds great, but why don't you take us through a little story of of how you got to where you are today in your life, personally and professionally? Sounds good. Um, As you mentioned, I was a voice major. Um, I graduated from high school and uh, actually wanted to go pre-med and uh, got a scholarship singing and that seemed to be my um, way into college. But I had to be a a music major to get the money, so that's what I ended up doing. Um, Great experience. Uh, I link back to music all the time. Um, Someone has recently asked me, you know, something from your childhood that really has impacted you as an adult. And I would say that music education that I've had since I was, you know, nine years old. Uh, and, and I can go into that further, but, you know, when you've been taught to read um, eight lines of music all at the same time with words, with dynamics that come with reading the note, um, you learn to multitask in a very interesting way. And, um, the, I always say that putting a trial together, I'm a trial lawyer, putting a trial together, law, excuse me, putting a trial together is a whole lot like um, putting a piece of music together and putting a concert of junior high singers together. It's very, very similar. <laughs> I bet. Uh, anyway, I, um, I did that for about four years. Um, I taught in Pryor, Oklahoma. Um, it was my first um, uh small town experience. I grew up in Dell City, which is, you know, just right here, part of Oklahoma City. Yes. Um, But that was my first small town experience, a town of about 10,000. I truly fell in love with the people there. I learned a whole lot about um, being an adult there because I was only 21 years old. But um, I taught for four years, uh, figured out pretty quickly that I was ambitious in a way I didn't know. And I thought, well, I need to do something. Can I go back and go to med school now? And uh, I wasn't interested in going back to undergrad. 
And um, I had a friend at the time who said, well, why don't you go to law school? And I was, what? Law school? Forget about that. I had no interest in law school. But when I was kind of thinking through the possibilities, I thought, well, if I have a law degree, I can do something with it. I don't have to be a lawyer. Um, I wasn't interested in doing criminal law. I mean, I I just didn't know much. I really didn't. Um, But I thought, well, I'll try it. Crazy. I mean, it was on a lark in that kind of way. But uh, the first year law school, uh, I realized, yeah, I'm very competitive, very ambitious, but this is hard. (laughs) You know, it was really hard. But I figured it out, fell in love with it, quite frankly. Um, The uh, academic part of it was great in law school. Um, Had the opportunity to clerk for a judge on the Court of Criminal Appeals. Um, And my third year of law school, I uh, was asked by a college friend. Um, Her husband was the assistant general counsel at an insurance company here in Oklahoma City. And they were looking for someone to come in, a a law student to come in and kind of help them on some projects. Um, They told me that uh, at the time, you know, this isn't a long-term thing, but nevertheless, I thought I've been with this uh, in the Court of Criminal Appeals about a year. Why not? And it was business. It was more business to go into an insurance company. So I went, um, and when I that was October of '94. When I graduated from law school in May of '96. Um, they offered me a job. So I started there. I learned a lot about insurance. I learned a lot about um, insurance claims, um, compliance. I learned about business. I learned about departments. I learned about how business um, functions. Um, But it was all at a very um, piecemeal, in a piecemeal way, just because of what I was doing as a lawyer. Um, Did that for about a year and a half, and um, they decided, the insurance company I was working for, decided to move the legal department to Dallas. I had just gotten married and my husband was not interested in moving to Dallas. So um, I thought, well, I guess I'll just go work in a law firm. One of the things I had done in law school is um, move to court. And moot court is not like, um, they have trials that they do. That's trial team. It's a little bit different. Moot court is more of an appellate kind of practice. I, but I did that for two years competitively in law school. Um, the performer in me, um, the music performer in me, um, you know, she got used a little bit in doing that. <laughs> it, it lends itself yeah, to it, it does. doesn't it? It does. But I knew that I I, uh, I enjoyed that part of being a lawyer. And um, even though I didn't even go to law school to truly practice law, um, I liked that. I was interested in being a trial lawyer. And so I um, opened up the bar journal, looked at ads for people wanting a young lawyer, and started um, working for a law firm that did trial work. Um, And as fate would have it, the first case I worked on there was a case against an insurance company. And um, that uh, 
was good because as a baby lawyer, um, you're just the learning curve is so steep anyway. You know, what they teach you in law school is one thing, but then you go put it in practice and it's like, oh, wait, they never taught me to do that. Uh, what? I'm supposed to do this? Um, and and you, you put that with a topic that not a lot of people know, insurance, uh, you've got really a, a recipe for lots of stress. At any rate, um, because I had that insurance experience, I was able to um, dive into that case. And uh, I won't go through the 17 years I was there, but suffice it to say, um, while I was at that law firm uh, over those 17 years, I um, became um, very well versed in the law about insurance companies about the duty of good faith and fair dealing that insurance companies owe people and um, became quite technically proficient at doing that kind of work. Um, after 17 years though of um, you know, being uh, an employee, a, a part of a wheel, um, I decided that I, I can do this. You know, there's there's not a reason I can't go do this. Um, there was a feeling of being confined at that point, a uh, feeling of I have ideas, but I can't do anything with them, an idea of, yeah, I can manage my staff, but as soon as someone else walks in the door, forget about it. They're not doing my stuff anymore. You know, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Very and, common, I think, yeah. coming coming from that environment. Right. And, and the way the traditional law firm is set up... Um, the it is a uh, what I call hierarchical or a, a pyramidal kind of scheme where uh, you know if you think of a triangle the bottom part of it at the foundation of it is your support staff and then above that support staff you'll have a level where you've got um, you know what's what folks know in the law world is associates mm. that's folks who really are doing all the day-to-day detail work. And then at the top of that pyramid, you have partners. And um, the partners in the law firm, they're lawyers, but they're not doing that day-to-day. And they're not really dealing with the support staff, except when they want to. And then, you know, those folks in the middle are, um, you know, kind of left without um, the support they need. So after 17 years, I decided I'm going to start my own thing. And um, the very first thing I did was decide that the traditional law firm model doesn't work. And it particularly wasn't working with regard to the new lawyers I saw coming in. Um, I kind of joke that, um, and it's true, I'm middle-aged. Mm-hmm. I am, but not only I'm 51 now, I was 47 at the time, um, being middle-aged uh, professionally as well. Um, by that point, I'd been practicing law 18 years, um, but the there was a generation gap between me and the, and I say good old boys, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's true. It was set up that way. Um, where you've got this group of, of guys who've been doing this a long time. Um, they want it done their way, and um, they're used to doing it that way. Um, and then there was that group, my age, middle-aged folks, who'd you know, been there, been 
in the law world for you know, 15, 20 years, but weren't, were just along for the ride with the traditional way things had always been done. Sure, didn't know better, right? Didn't know better. Yeah. Um, and then I saw that there were uh, the young folks coming in and you know, we hear in the news, and certainly at that point in time, we're hearing about uh, millennials. Their work ethic's different. They don't have a work ethic. They, you know, they're useless. I mean, I would hear that. And mm-hmm. as, and part of my job in those 17 years is I was mentoring and um, uh, supervising young lawyers. So even though I theoretically was at the top of the pyramid, I really wasn't. I was kind of at the bottom of the top of the top of the pyramid. So I was um, supervising these young lawyers and I, and in observing them, I realized it's not that they don't have a work ethic, is that their values are different. And um, I always think of it in terms of, um, I graduated from high school in 1985. During the 80s, we heard a lot about yuppies and there was a lot about all the money and it was all about having the BMW. It was all about how much money you can amass. I remember that from being a young adult, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and those guys are these guys older than me. I mean, that is that yuppie generation. And it was all about how much money you can amass. And then as I was sitting there middle-aged now, looking at the millennials coming in, I thought that's not what motivates them. They are not motivated by money in the same way the yuppie guys, uh, what would have been yuppies, folks older than me were. And what motivates them is culture, having a place where they want to come work, having a quality of the work they were doing. It wasn't about how many hours they worked. Um, What I noticed from them is they worked from start eight. If they were there eight to five, they were working from eight to five. They weren't lazy. They just weren't there at 930, 10 o'clock at night. They weren't killing it in that way. But it wasn't because they're lazy. It's because they had a different value. Do, do you find, so in traditional, if we go back to mm-hmm. the, the old guy, the, mm-hmm. the old model, we'll say. Yes. That's so right. where it's 60, 70, 80 hours a week. So in your experience, um, millennials, even in law, are, are nine to fivers for the most part. And because they're outside, that's important to them, right? Yes. Uh, I'm not saying that they, there are not those who are working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, but they're working that because that's the job they're in. Right. But from a personal human value system, they want to be with their families. You know, they want to have a good place to go to work, but they don't want to spend their life at work. I always tell the story that the year I, uh, my son was two years old, so this was 16 years ago. I was away from home 38 nights that year. So if you add that up, I was away from home over a month in the year he was two years old. And I'm not complaining about that. It's just an observation of that time, that's what you had to do. Right. And um, just to be clear, I'm, I am not a billing lawyer. You know, a lot of lawyers, a lot of young baby lawyers, in my experience when I was a first coming out, um, worked for law firms that required a certain number of billable hours. And um, I've never been that kind of lawyer where I was billing time. But that's not to say that the traditional law firm structure, no matter what 
whether your contingency fee, which is how we were paid, versus billable, that traditional law firm structure doesn't care about those differences. Um, and uh, what I mean by that is the values that they were created upon had everything to do with quantity of time, right. how much time you're putting in. And um, you know, when I was putting my firm together five years ago, I knew that the traditional law firm model, that structure I described, that triangle, um, does not meet the needs, the human needs of the folks coming in. And um, I was, when I decided to start my own firm then, I, as a middle-aged person who can see both, um, decided that I needed to build something and create something that was different. Okay. Well, you're, you're not the first um, attorney, lawyer in, in that profession to tell me that business model of the past doesn't really work today. Yeah. And, and I, so I think what I see is a change coming mm-hmm. um, because I hear different ways that they see that model. So for you, so you've established this firm You've obviously got some young attorneys on staff. So what does that business model look like today? And is it where you ultimately want to take it? Good question. Um, It looks linear. It is um, the, I, there's a lot that I can respond to in that. It's kind of a loaded question for me because I can (laughs) unpack it all. Sure. But um, the, from a business model, I have no idea. Okay. Because I'm a lawyer. Right. But what I do know is the law firm structure um, wasn't going to work. And I saw that it's not going to work going forward. I also saw that technology really is going to play a part in what goes forward. Um, you know, I, I, I was... I had the benefit and the blessing of being middle-aged, of seeing the way things had been done and seeing what's coming. And I tried to structure this law firm to look different than other, that traditional model I was aware of. So what I did is um, I created a team rather than the triangle Mm -hmm. um, where what is traditionally known as a paralegal, um, I changed the name. You know, they, they, I didn't want it to sound like that. Um, what we did was sat down and went through everything that a lawyer does when a client first contacts you. What are all the tasks that take place at that point. And the first thing is what's going to happen when someone calls. So I I just detail for you kind of the idea, you know, someone calls, they call, who are they going to talk to next? What is it going to take to um, get them to sign a contract? Do we have a contract? Um, Who's going to be the lawyer assigned to this? Or are we going to assign a lawyer? 
what happens? Uh, are we going to file a lawsuit? Who's going to file the lawsuit? When does that happen? Um, how does it get filed? I mean, all those little minutiae and truly minutiae of what a day-to-day movement of a case looks like. Well, you you defined um, maybe your onboarding process. Yes. So you know, and, and it's a good topic. I'm glad you brought that up. So a lot of times, small business they make it up on the fly, yes. right? And so I'm curious, have you seen the benefits of going through that exercise and implementing it in right. your practice? I have. And what I just described is just the onboarding, but right. I went from start to finish. Right. I went from the moment the client calls to the moment I close out that case. And each little step of minutiae along the line, we considered and we considered how do we want that experience of that client to look. And uh, eventually, taking each one of these parts, we created what we call a pipeline. And our pipeline is um, has five different pieces to it. The first piece is intake. So that onboarding you're talking about, we created a process that we call intake that's about that. Um, there are things that happen automatically. We, before we ever started, structured what that experience for our client is going to look like. Great. And we're not thinking about bodies at this point. We're thinking about what does that look like? What happens at that point? Okay, so so you're talking about their experience in the onboarding process. Yes. And do you have that conversation throughout your process where, you know, ultimately I talk a lot about what is that client experience? Because yes. let's face it, whether it's the law or, you know, any, take any industry, we have a level of commoditization. Yes. And so really being able to define that and have that vision for what that client experience and that ultimate outcome. Right. Right. And so that's what you've done. Yes, absolutely. So I've, I've treated and, and perhaps I got ahead of myself there for a moment, but I have treated the service I have. I, I actually look at it as a service. Um, I'm looking at it more as a business. So a minute ago, you were talking about what's different about the business model. That sounds different to me. I don't, that doesn't ring true for me. Okay. But the fact that I based my law model, the way I'm delivering the legal service, on business ideals, right. so that intake is onboarding. Um, but that client doesn't stay in intake. Where do they go next? We have it called stage one. Stage one is after I have a contract with them, and there's all sorts of things that need to happen in stage one, because stage two is when we file a lawsuit. Okay. And um, not all of my clients go to litigation, so they stay in stage one. Stage two is litigation. Stage three is once that case is, is resolved, you know, there are things that have to happen, money, you know, uh, taking care of all the things that have to do with bringing money in and then getting money to the client. And then stage four, which from a legal standpoint is appeals. Things that we didn't do too well in stage two and we bump it into stage four. Right. But there are processes related to each one of those five categories. And those things happen automatically. That's where it changed. Think of the old traditional model where um, partner rocks in the door and he says, I want this, 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 and this. 
people are constantly doing somebody else's to-do list. They don't really get into the mix of what the case is about, what the client's story is about. And I wanted to change that. So having intake, um, that I have a paralegal, what I, I'll use that term, she does most of intake. That doesn't mean a lawyer's not involved, but to keep the process going, it's automated. She knows what to do next. She's not coming and asking, what do I do now? I'm not reminding someone, oh, give me a contract. I'm not reminding someone, oh, call this person back. It happens automatically. Once we have that contract, there are things that happen automatically. When we go into litigation, there are things that happen automatically. And so what we did then, if I were to rewind, is we looked at all the things that happen in that client experience to the minutia, mm -hmm. put it into a lane, so to speak, lane intake, lane stage one, lane stage two, lane stage three. And then from there, we started putting bodies in. We started putting in the team member who was responsible for certain lanes that we had created. Um, what we found in doing that is, um, the politics of who's going to work for the partner, who's doing the, all the politics I'd always seen in that traditional model were gone. People stay in their lane. They know where to go. And they're not coming and asking me or another lawyer questions like, well, we got this signed up. What do we do now? Right. Or you've got a meeting with um, Jane Doe, new client, and leave me to my own devices. Not only am I not left, the lawyers aren't left. It's all consistent. It is all um, efficient. Getting back to my millennial discussion, what happened when we did that? Not only is the environment in which people are working less politically motivated, um, it also, and I could talk about that for a, <laughs> forever, but not only is it less politically motivated, it created the um, freedom for people to work eight to five if they want to, nine to six if they want to. Um, I went to work yesterday at 11. I work till seven. I don't always do that. It's just that's, but because those things are happening automatically, it allows for the remote working that everybody wants to be doing. It allows for the millennial who wants to pick their daughter up from school at 4 p.m. You know, there's not this necessity that they be there and have their face shown from eight to five for some partner who may or may not be walking in the door. Well, really what I hear you saying, and I think this is what's important for entrepreneurs to understand, is yes, as, as you're starting your business, there's a lot of hours to go in because you're doing things outside your technical proficiency, Absolutely. right? But once you've got that and you've taken the time, it's really about your team, yourself, it's results. It's not time. And, and I think we were brought up right to think it, it was all about time. And there's so much wasted time that if, if we can really understand the roles and what we want that client experience to be like, and we can focus more on that outcome or those results. And then, like you said, we have the flexibility. And I think that's that's something that I see in a lot of businesses, or at least they're, that's what they'd like to do right. in that direction. So it sounds like you've done that. Let's shift gears for a second. Sure. And let's talk about 
you know, I'm big on freedom, especially for, for entrepreneurs, because we hear so much that that's what we all want. Let's face it. We want time because everything seems to be moving so fast today. And we do want the financial resources to be able to take advantage of that free time. But I'm curious, um, how would you define what freedom as a business owner means for you? Freedom to me is the freedom to create whatever I want. And what I mean by that is um, me as a business owner, what has that experience given me? And it is freedom to be creative. I'm a singer. I'm an artist. And so what all this structure I'm talking about not only does it make it so that time is not something I'm spending working, but it means that when I am at work, I have the freedom to be creative. Um, I'm a trial lawyer. Um, one of the things that we really want to be able to do is tell the story of our clients. And that takes time. Right. And it's not that Joe Blow was in a car wreck and he broke his arm and he went to this doctor and the doctor said you need surgery and it cost $350 or whatever it might be. That's not the story of my client. My story is that Joe, through no fault of his own, got hurt. How did that broken arm impact his life? How did it um, interfere with his ability to do his very favorite thing, which is to play baseball with his son, to throw the ball? You know. My point in to answer your question on freedom, because I'm not answering questions or giving and barking orders all the time, the system is working for itself. The people are working in their own lanes, which gives them autonomy, their freedom to not just be tied down to what the boss is telling them to do. Of course. So for me, if I were to give you an answer other than time, what owning my own business has done for me, the freedom that it has given me is to just be creative, to learn, to grow. The things that um, really, when you're past 50, I mean, it's not like I'm gonna have a baby and that's what I have to look <laughs> right. forward to. I need to have something that, you know, you know what I mean? No, I mean, absolutely. That's one of the things that I have, um, you know, it's a harsh reality when you know, you're 50, 51, and you think half of my life is over. Right. So what am I gonna do this next half? Creating a occupation, a workplace that gives me the freedom to just um, create whatever I want. So, so really, you've created the platform that allows you to help other people and kind of tap into that creative side of of who Simone Fulmer is. Yes. Right. And, and who I want to be for my clients. Absolutely. They want someone who knows them. They yeah. want someone who listens to how a traumatic event has impacted their life. If I'm too worried about getting something on file and telling this person to do that and telling this person to do that and, you know, oh, they didn't come to work on time and all of those things, then I'm not present there for my client. And, the, and I'm not, but not only me, I have four and a half lawyers. I'll tell you a minute why I said that, but <laughs> they, they need that too. 
Right. They need to know the client too. They need to have that human experience with our clients. I said four and a half because I have one who just took the bar exam. Oh. So he's not a lawyer yet. So okay. he's, but uh, we'll have five. Crossing fingers, Crossing right? Fingers, well, yeah. good. It, yeah. It's that's just an excellent point, and um, and I'm glad that that you've seen that. You know, you think back and you talk about being 50. We'll say over 50. Mm-hmm. I think one of the beautiful parts of being over 50 is you've been through you know i always say Mm -hmm. that i gave the last 25 years like learning and doing what people wanted and now you get the freedom to create your own 25 you know as we go out into the future when you um yeah just for your listener i i knew this question was coming one of the things that i wrote down is that no one is stopping me that's the freedom of business for me no one's stopping me um, I have no one keeping me from doing anything. Right. So that was the fun part of starting my firm is that I could create this system I'm talking about. Um, I could hire the team members I wanted. Um, I could, you know, we're not going to do it that way. You know, well, that's the way people have always done it. So, so yeah, exactly yeah. right. And um, yeah, so. well, good. That, you know, <clears throat> it's fascinating, and, and I can see you're smiling, and mm-hmm. and you know the the thing that I think uh, entrepreneurs sometimes, you know, it's hard to to have success is no no easier than to have failure. It's just you've got to work through these things and stick with it and have that grit. And so, congratulations. Let me, so knowing what you know, if you were to address somebody thinking about launching their own practice or their own business, it doesn't even have to be in law, based on your experience, what advice would you share with them? Make a system. That's it. Really? Because my freedom is because I have that system. My employee's freedom is because we have that system. Um, it's absolutely essential. And if you're already in business and don't have one, you should put one. You will. Your life will change. I recently was. Um, I spent a month at the Trial Lawyers College in Wyoming, and um, there was definitely a sense at that point in the group of people there. I was an old person. Lots of young lawyers there. <laughs> I was like, wow. I mean, there was just this harsh reality of my age. But um, with that is experience, like you said. And yeah. um, I was listening to some lawyers, uh, you know, kind of commiserate with each other. They're four or five-year lawyers commiserating with each other about how horrible, busy it is, all these people barking at them, you know, staff not doing what they should be doing, them not doing this, them um, – not the the attorney not feeling like they could delegate to someone because no one's going to do it as well as I do. Um, all of these things that they were saying, and I thought, I've been there, and I promise you a system is going to change that. I have the secret for you. <laughs> you know, that's how I felt. Right. Yeah. Um, you have to delegate. You have to let go. You absolutely do, or you are going to be miserable. So how can I let go of something that I have a very particular way of doing and be confident it's going to get done the way I want it to. 
I can tell you, it's a system. Yeah. It is having the discipline to back up, stop all, stop the train for a minute, and look to see what am I doing that needs to be replicated? What am I doing that truly cannot be replicated? And if it can be, if somebody else can be doing that part of your job or that thing you have been doing, get it off your plate. And then not only you're not just handing it to them, you're telling them this is the box that this lives in. This is the way I want to see this done. You have to be very specific. You get down into the minutiae, like I was saying earlier. But once you've done that, is there some oversight? Absolutely. But the worst thing you can do for yourself is to take it back. You oversee it. You make sure it's working. You work with the person you've handed it to to get there. But the time spent there is going to be so worth it on down the road. Absolutely. And, and that's part of developing your team. Right, Absolutely. because you, you're you're showing them the confidence, and they're engaging, um, fulfilling that. And right. so, to your point, you'd never want to pull that back, because then you you might. I mean, I could see that just really devastating somebody who wants to be engaged in that process. But on the other hand, it's led to a lot of what what you've been able to do. So, Absolutely. So systems is what I hear you saying. Systems, systems, systems. Good. I. Uh, yeah, you'd be amazed what you start, all the things you can systemize. Yes. I, I, I say that I, um, because of what I was doing, insurance, bad faith cases, there are very few people in Oklahoma who that's really all they do. There are some lawyers who dabble in it here and there, but because that's all I did, it did I have a vast knowledge of that area of the law. And... Um, you, you take this expertise, so to speak, that I have, and I could be working every single one of my cases with that expertise. What I've done is I have pulled out of that expertise those things that I don't have to do. Um, you know, there's a certain kind of case we have that I've spent five years with another lawyer in my firm. He's learned those cases. He knows them as well as I do. But I had to spend that time. I didn't just say, oh, you're not getting it, and say, okay, fine, I'll just keep it. I had to let him do that. And um, in doing that, I'm releasing some of that stuff I think I'm the only one who can do. Um, you and I have visited about scalability and those mm -hmm. kinds of things that if you want to grow, you've got to kind of look at from a business perspective. And um, you can never be scalable if you keep that tight. If you're selfishly holding on to those things, thinking I'm the only one, I do it better than anyone else. Um, that selfishness is going to keep you from growing. We see that all the time, and that yeah. and that it's absolutely point on um, on that. Well, Simone, you know this this has been great, and we could take all day because I think there's a lot of topics we dig into that unfortunately we're coming to the end of the show so if somebody wanted to learn more about you and your firm or reach out to you how do they contact you well you can uh, email me it's always good um, the my email address is s fulmer f-u-l-m-e-r at fulmersill.com okay um, they can check us out on our website, 
fulmerseal.com. We've got a very active Facebook page. Um, uh, Google us. Yes. I hope you'll see us. We are not on TV, um, but hopefully you can find us that way. And then, um, you know, the firm's phone number is on the website. Okay. Okay. And I know you're on social media, so absolutely, just got to pull you up. Well, listen, it's been fantastic. I think you've shared some nuggets uh, today that I hope our audience will will take and, and, and think on and um, appreciate you being there. And so, you know, guys, this brings to the end another episode of the Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast. Appreciate uh, you tuning in and appreciate any feedback that you have for us. So until next time, thank you and have a wonderful week. The Over 50 Entrepreneur Podcast is sponsored by Epic Business Advisory, where we help entrepreneurs escape the owner's trap, build businesses that can succeed without you, allowing you the opportunity to realize more freedom, think bigger, and pursue next level goals. Download our freedom formula at epicsbiz.com slash formula. And remember, we're only getting started.